0: recovery elevator episode 268
1: instead of having uh, recovery be the focus of my life to just using the tools of sobriety in my life
0: welcome to the recovery elevator podcast my name is Paul Churchill thank you so much for joining us today on today's podcast we've got Raj he took his last drink on May 11, 2014. He's 54 years old and from the city of Los Angeles, California. In his interview, he talks about how his drinking was a slow progression, and it progressed, then progressed, then progressed even more. Today, Raj has been away from alcohol for over five years, but he talks about how he felt he was a hopeless case. It's a great interview. You all are going to love it. You guys, and a couple quick announcements before we get started. I've got a free webinar tonight, Monday, April 6th at 8 p.m. Eastern with spiritual teacher Elaine Huang titled Spirituality and Addiction. She'll chat about spirituality and how this affects addiction, and then we'll do q and A. Q&A. You may have heard that destruction with alcohol happens in this order, spiritually, mentally, and physically, and the healing process happens in reverse order. First, we heal physically, then mentally, and then to make that final push out of addiction, it needs to happen with the spiritual self. It's going to be a fantastic webinar. Again, this is free. You can register at recoveryelevator.com on the homepage, and a link to join will be sent an hour before the webinar starts. And I want to share two meditations with you where I've created both the music and the prompts. And you can get these on the homepage of recoveryelevator.com. One of them, we do work with the inner child. And the other one, we work on getting a clear and coherent vision of your new self. Now, these meditations, they match up with the music. It's almost like a cycle class, right? Where I'm pushing, I'm saying, come on, let's go. Put this vision out into the field and then it will happen. It has to, it's a universal law. I'm excited to share these with you. And one more thing, I wanna talk to you guys about BetterHelp. Now, I've personally used this online counseling service and now with many of us quarantined right now, mental health and addiction are directly intertwined and I highly recommend BetterHelp. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not a crisis line, it's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And for 10% off your first counseling session, go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash betterhelp. That's B E T T E R H E L P. Again, for 10% off your first session, go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash betterhelp. Shout out to Chase from Eagle Vale, Colorado, for hitting eight months with that alcohol. Chase, it was great meeting you in person and keep on moving forward, brother. Okay, let's get started. On today's episode, I'd like to zoom out a bit and talk about the journey for a moment. Now remember, there is no one size fits all approach to ditching the booze, but I think most of us can agree there can be trying times. You often hear on this podcast from myself and interviewees how incredible a life without alcohol is, which I can attest to, but the pathway can be difficult at times and for reasons unknown, more challenging for some than others. So just like there's comfort knowing you're not alone as in you're not the only person on the planet who struggles with alcohol which is how i felt when i first started this journey early last decade there's also comfort knowing that collectively people find this pathway hard the pains and difficult moments are all part of it and you're not alone so keep in mind of the roughly 100,000 genes we inherit not one of them is the addiction gene And you can reverse this progression. You will reverse this progression. Right now, since you're listening to this podcast, it places you in the ring. You are an active participant in the game of life. You're in the center of the ring and not up in the grandstands observing. You're an absolute badass for purposefully placing yourself in this ring where there's a good chance, almost a certain chance. You're going to get dirty, smacked, kicked punched, rolled over on, and a lot of other unpleasant things. This isn't you saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm kind of open to failing. It's you saying, I'm prepared to fail as many times as I need to be successful. I admire each and every one of you for consciously choosing to enter the ring. Seriously, it's so impressive. I applaud all of you for continuing to listen to this podcast, even if the message hasn't quite hit home yet. Now, to be fair, by electing to be here, living life on planet Earth, that alone places you in the ring. So everyone, more or less, is in the ring. But your decision to move forward in life without alcohol, to address the number one thing that's holding you back in life, places you in the center of the ring, and not way up in the upper decks as an observer. Your conscious decision to depart from the booze, From what provided relief, from what used to make your job, anxiety, depression, shame, guilt, winter, and your neighbor Tom and certain relationships bearable places you in the center of the ring. You might be saying, wait a second, Paul, I haven't told anyone about my decision to quit drinking. And well, if that's the only ship you've burnt is with yourself, which is where it starts, you've still taken the most important step in your life. This is what makes you brave courageous, valiant, daring, vulnerable, adventurous, and a bold leader. Now you may have heard courageous and vulnerable in the same sentence, and that's no coincidence because they are the same damn thing. And deep down you know, the only way out is through. And to go through, you're going to get cracked open in the most beautiful of ways. It's almost like a vulnerable sandwich. First, we must be courageous enough to be vulnerable then, we must be courageous again to address the vulnerable parts. The vulnerability sandwich. I like it. I will personally be adding some horseradish mayo or honey mustard. I'm a huge sauce guy, by the way. Now, let me describe what the ring looks like. Imagine a bowl ring from Spain, one that Ernest Hemingway would write about in The Sun Also Rises. When you stop running, turn, and face your fears, you just made the decision to place yourself in the center of the ring. Now, as I said before, everyone is in the ring, but you just came down from row 55, which is near the top, and are now inside the ring. And you can get shoved around while sitting in the top row of the stands, and there's a slim possibility you'll have to confront a stray bull, but by sitting way up there, you're well in the comfort of your comfort zone. And apart from the occasional shirt getting launched up there from a t-shirt cannon, not much happens, ever. It's a bunch of people who are living behind screens who have mighty thumbs and can type whatever they want. Up there, where you used to be, is called the sidelines of life, where all you have is talk, inaction, and empty goals. And how does that saying go? Talk is expensive? No. Talk is a bargain? No. Talk is of lesser quality? No. Talk is cheap. Yeah, that's it. Got it so here you are inside the ring you look down and you find your shoes are covered in dust you suddenly feel smaller things don't smell quite right and you see large bowls running around you see swords bows and arrows spears dinner parties where alcohol is flowing freely you see your best friend aaron offering you a vodka cranberry you recognize it's only a matter of time before you get your ass kicked And as I mentioned in last episode, it's not about avoiding these ass kickings in life. It's about getting back up into the ring. I think I've done a good job of accurately describing what this journey will be like. I covered this more specifically in episode 250 titled, Is Sobriety All Unicorns and Rainbows? Sure, after alcohol, a new life awaits. One without crushing hangovers and self-loathing. But while in the ring... There will be challenging and trying days. Moments you don't think, and the keyword there is think, you'll be triumphant. But you are. You will find the strength because it's there. I know it's there. It always has been. Now let me read to you one of my favorite quotes of all time. One that I had framed and hung up on my wall before the very first episode of the Recovery Elevator podcast dropped on February 25th, 2015. I kid you not. I hit submit to iTunes and looked right up at that framed quote and said, oh boy, here we go. Here's the quote. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, I think Teddy does a damn good job of summarizing just what level of ninja status you're at. You're in the ring, which is all that matters. Now, the thing you're probably saying to yourself is this. Teddy's right. I don't care what others think about me. Say it to yourself. It sounds good. It feels good. But how come when we get criticism, it usually stirs up a whirlwind of emotion in some part of the body. You're like, hang on, I just told myself, I don't care what others think about me, but how come there's a knot the size of a grapefruit in my solar plexus? It's because we are wired to care. We are genetically hardwired to care what others think about us. Reason why is we need a tribe. We need a community to survive. Okay, so here's where I can add comfort. Criticism is normal. In fact, it can be a barometer knowing you're on the right path. How does that saying go? Haters gonna hate? Hurt people hurt people? Blah to all of them and that. We've covered countless ways on this podcast to stay grounded, to not let others affect your energy, but let's be honest, some of it still hurts. It always will, and that's all right. Allow yourself to feel it, and I can promise you with a capital P, alcohol will only create another more ferocious critic. Now, who's the critic? Who's the person saying you're not worth it, or you don't deserve this, or don't even try because you'll never make it? It's not who we think it is. Now stick with me for a second here. The spectator, or the critic we're thinking about, the one we imagine sitting in the stands, heckling from above, in the comfort of their seat, is mostly quiet. Why? The spectator respects you, admires you, is almost envious of you, for your decision to be the most authentic version of yourself because deep down they want the same for themselves so they want you to succeed and sure you may get the occasional cackle or low blow from above but even they are saying go go get back up go get it girl do it show us how lead the way they all want you to find purchase on this journey so who's the critic when you're in the ring grappling with alcohol. Who is the one that places the most seemingly impenetrable walls on your path? Wait for it. It's you. I'm 99.99% sure the worst critic is you. The constant voice hurling the most vitriolic, painful volleys and insults is coming from you. Or the voice inside your head. So this is good news. You can't control disapproval from the outside. And well... You can't really control the thinking on the inside either, but with awareness, you can start to rewire this inner critic to be your inner cheerleader, your biggest fan, a coach when you need it most. The way you do this is become more conscious than ever of the unconscious self, and when thoughts come across the mind that say, Michelle, let's not even try, we won't make it, all you have to say is, thank you for your input. That's it. You don't need to latch on to those thoughts. So when we do that, that's the equivalent of a tomahawk throw into an opponent in the ring. With awareness and one departure from those unhealthy thoughts at a time, you tune out this critic, you stand tall, and move forward in life without the poison. You can do this. I know you can. You've been doing the heavy lifting for quite some time now. You're up to this task. I know you are. Come on. We both know you are. Being in the ring is scary at first, terrifying, but with time, you'll even find comfort there. Even begin to enjoy it, welcome it, all of it. Keep in mind, you're the one with the dust on your face, or for us, sometimes puke in your hair. It's you that's in the ring, not the external critic. You're the relevant one. Now, in the show notes for this episode, which can be found on recoveryelevator.com website or in your podcast media player, there is a link to a video where a young gal is learning to jump up on a block. And quick side note, thank you so much to Carrie Mack, who's done a great job with the show notes for over a year now. So this little gal can't be more than four, five, or six years old. She just keeps trying and keeps failing. The block is hitting her in the chin. She keeps falling over, but she keeps getting back up into the ring. And then, after heaps of jumps, she gets it. Just like you. I recommend watching the video. So I got the idea for this episode after I got a couple emails from listeners who were ready to give up. To accept defeat and exit the ring entirely and surrender to a life of drinking and misery. Hang with me for a second here. I'm going to ask the listeners a question. You. Was there ever a moment when you could have sent that very same email, when you were ready to quit? Hang on, let me check the poll. Okay, every single listener who has ditched the booze or is in the process just nodded their head. So if this is how you're feeling at the moment, know it's completely normal. Some call it the dark night of the soul, which means you're so close. So promise me to stay in the ring for as long as it takes. And you know who else is in the ring with you? Me. And let me tell you, the other side is much closer than you think. And before we hear from Raj, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or simply sober curious, You'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24/7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction, and another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Raj, how are you?
1: I'm great, Paul. How are you?
0: Raj, I'm doing great. And listeners, this is the third time I hit the record button, so we're just going to roll with it right now. Raj, when was your last drink?
1: May 11th,
0: 2014. May 11th, 2014. Now, hang on just a quick moment there, Raj. I'm supposed to be the one on the podcast that has more time away from alcohol than the interviewee. Uh, I'm just kidding on that one. I I love interviewing people that are further along this journey than me. Some of the best teachers that I've had on this journey are the ones that I've spoken with, just like we're going to have a conversation on this podcast. So I'm excited to share that uh, your 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 journey with the listeners, and in the previous recording session we just had, you said that year five to six has been a little bit more difficult. But before we get fully into that, just give us a, a quick statement about that, or where you're at from year five to six. What has the challenges been?
1: Well, you know, you refer to isms uh, quite a bit, right? <laughs> quite an incredibly short memory at this point, sort of all the wreckage, and I had quite a bit. It's it's so far. So behind me, that I think I think my memory is trying to forget about it, and or my subconscious, and as a result, I feel like I've had sort of more triggers and and more cravings to drink than I I really felt I've had for a long long time, uh, and so I've I felt it's been sort of more challenging, and you know, I've got that that sneaky voice that uh, tells me I think more often these days, you know, gee, Raj, why can't you have that drink, right? So it's I think it's got to do with just having sort of more time and the fact that I've I've. I have some history now between all of the wreckage, and there was quite a bit uh, between you know then and now. And, and you know I, I've I've pretty much put my life together from from what it was, mostly, not all of it, but most of it. And so I think I think it's pretty easy for my subconscious, where I believe this uh, disease exists, to sort of say, you know, hey, why can't you go back to drinking?
0: Raj, I appreciate your honesty, your authenticity with this. Oftentimes I say, hey, how's it feel being X amount of days away from alcohol? And the answer is always great. So I appreciate you opening up more about that with the ism that's the incredible short memory. And that is one of the powerful attributes of alcohol. We seem to forget uh, the most detrimental parts of our journey. And that's actually part of, uh, it's called euphoric recall. It's how human beings are wired. And and women with childbirth, I don't think they'd ever have a second child if they were to remember the most intense moments of pain. Um, But let me ask this question before we get some background about yourself is with the cravings to alcohol that you're experiencing from year five to year six, which we're in right now. Do you think it's specific to alcohol or perhaps just wanting to feel differently than you're currently feeling?
1: You know, I, I guess I really think it's alcohol. I think it's yeah, you know, like we we are surrounded by alcohol, right? Like I travel quite a bit, and I see people ordering drinks on planes, and it's like, well, why can't I have that drink? And on the surface, they appear like they're having a good time. So I, I don't I don't I don't really think it is somehow trying to change the way I feel. It's just it's just you know you're surrounded by alcohol, and my my mind telling me why well, why can't why can't I be one of those people.
0: Gotcha. And I think I read a stat and listeners, I apologize if I messed this up. It's between 70 to 80 times per day. I think in a metropolitan area, we are going to see a reference to alcohol either on a billboard, on a TV in an ad or or that type of, of marketing. And so whether we're trying to or not, even trying to blockade it, it's still seeping into the unconscious. So that makes sense. Thanks for answering the question, Raj. And let's get a little information about yourself. Tell listeners where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and what do you like to do for fun?
1: Yeah, so I'm 54. Uh, I'm from Los Angeles. I have a 13-year-old son, divorced, and I love cycling. I'm a I'm an avid endurance cyclist, uh, which which I love to do. I do it as much as I possibly can. The neat thing about it is that it's, it also keeps me sober. I think it's the principal thing that keeps me sober, and you know, I'm sure we'll be talking more about that.
0: Gotcha. Now with the cycling, what is so beneficial with that to your recovery?
1: Well, I, I, it may sound weird, but it's spiritual for me. I love climbing mountains. Uh, you know, last year I climbed Haleakala on Maui twice. Something I never could have done if I was drinking. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a climb from from zero feet to ten thousand feet, just straight, straight going up. So uh, almost two miles, and it's just it's, to me, it's a spiritual experience climbing my bike and and just sort of being out there in the fresh air and the challenge of doing it Uh, and I think that's the reason it helps me to stay sober that I I really I realized this perhaps maybe a year ago that it's truly a spiritual experience for me it it affects my soul in an incredible uplifting manner and I think for that reason it uh, it's helped me on this journey
0: Raj with the cycling do you find yourself in a flow state at times where you experience gaps in thought or just a thinking mind takes a break
1: Oh, absolutely. Like when you're climbing a mountain like Haleakala or even in Los Angeles, you just can't think. I mean, you've got to like, you've got to just sort of put your entire being into climbing that mountain. And so it's, it's almost meditative for me or a form of meditation. So absolutely.
0: Yeah. And about five to 10 episodes ago, I do an episode called flow states, the importance of putting the body and the mind in a situation where we can almost clock out, giving the mind permission to stop thinking. And that's what the runner's high is called. It's when we get into that meditative state where one foot after the other, and usually they say it's after the first mile is so painful with running. And then all of a sudden hmm, we enjoy it. Well, that's because we're not thinking and it's, it's an altered state of mind and it's not altered. It's just, we're used to thinking. So. That is the importance of the flow states because the addiction lives in the thinking mind. When we are in the moment, in the now, there are no problems. There's no bills to pay. There's no past. There's no present and there's no addiction. So thanks for covering that. And Raj, give listeners some background with your drinking. Talk to us about when you started. How much did you drink? When did you first recognize that alcohol was a problem? Did you ever put any rules into place? I'm excited to hear those. Did you ever have any rock bottom moments? We're excited to hear your story Raj
1: yeah there's quite a bit there so uh, you know my story I think is a bit different than what I what I've heard quite often and for example the rooms of AA and on your show and, and AA is also part of my recovery and I'd like to talk about that too uh, but uh, you know I really didn't drink until going to college uh, I remember Uh, You know, my friends and I getting beer in high school and I just I just absolutely hated it. I I remember buying a case of beer and it just rotted in in my back shed instead of drinking it because I just hated it so much. And I just really started drinking in college. And I never had that sort of aha moment that, you know, boy, alcohol is the thing for me. And, you know, I'm going to drink to blackout right away. It just was sort of a very sort of slow progression. You know, other people were doing it. And so I did it. And it just, it just, you know, it's a progressive disease and it just progressed and it progressed and it progressed. And, you know, there would be spikes in my drinking when sort of traumatic events would happen, like a breakup with a girlfriend or something. And, you know, starting in 1991, I started having adverse uh, consequences as a result of drinking a DUI and not getting a job. But, you know, by and large, you know, life was going okay and my career was taking off and it was very easy for me to sort of paper over the fact that, you know, drinking, I, I, was, I was drinking more and more as the, as the years uh, went by and, and I think ultimately it started helping me with anxiety. You know, uh, as, as you mentioned on your show, uh, alcohol actually triggers anxiety and it makes it worse, but in the moment it sort of helped. I have a very stressful job. And so I use that as an excuse to drink, uh, you know almost every day, you know after after a few years. But I'd say, you know, there were these spikes uh, of of a lot of a lot of drinking, but then it would sort of return down to to more or less normal. but it was always sort of increasing until until like uh, 20, 2010, and we can talk about that. And then things totally spiraled out of control for, for about three years. Uh, and the rules, yeah, like I absolutely put down the rules that uh, like I, I, would only, I would only drink uh, uh, light beer, for example. I would only drink on weekends. I'd only have two martinis at night and not three or four. I'd only drink more on weekends, uh, but, but it's a progressive disease and I, I stopped following those rules.
0: Hey, Raj, let me ask you a question. I like how you said it was a slow progression, but it progressed, it progressed, and it progressed. I know a lot of listeners were nodding their heads right there listening to that. And you mentioned there were spikes, as in there was a breakup with a girlfriend. And in 1991, there were some ramifications, job loss, or I had trouble getting a job, and there was a DUI. But during that progression, when there wasn't a spike, was there moments where you could step out and see... Uh, see where this was going, because one of the problems with alcohol is why it's so dangerous is that it kills slowly. There's other drugs like meth, crack, and cocaine that uh, the effects, the dumpster fire will ignite at a much faster rate. So with alcohol, we almost can't connect the dots. And then when things do happen, we write them off as one-offs and, and, and we almost just say, Oh, it was, it was just, it just happened. Right. And it's not that big of a deal. But in this progression from 1991, I think you said is when there were ramifications, were you able to step back and say, there's some clear writing on the wall? I
1: definitely did not. I I lived in denial for uh, over 20 years from from when that happened. I didn't actually make, a I think, a strong effort to get sober until May of, of 2011. So so no, I didn't. I I just uh, you know the, the, my my wife now ex-wife every now and then would sit me down and complain about my drinking. People would complain to her, and I I thought they were jealous or didn't know what they were talking about. And I just I just ignored it. I literally ignored it. And you know in retrospect, I wish I didn't. But I I was living in in an absolute state of denial. Absolutely.
0: Okay, you said people mentioned to your ex-wife that Raj perhaps might be drinking too much. Is that what you said? And you ignored oh, that.
1: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Gotcha. And and get us up to speed. You said in May of 2011 that was your first attempt to to quit drinking. Fill in the gaps there. If there's anything leading up to that, if there was a rock bottom moment, Uh, keep going.
1: Yeah. So the the one thing that I always had going for me was was my career. My career always did well, and so I just I just papered over my increasing drinking problem. But in the summer of 2010, I had a very serious biking accident. I I broke my ankle mountain biking and uh, I actually had to be helicoptered to UCLA (laughs) Medical Center because they couldn't get an ambulance to where I was and although this was less than 10 years ago, uh, the doctors prescribed to me this insane amount of Vicodin and in a period of like four months from July 31 until December uh i just i i my work product went to hell and i actually got put put on probation at work because like my work product was total shit and like i said that was the one thing i could keep together and at that point in time my wife actually for the first time as i recall actually said rod you're an alcoholic and uh, I, I think I suffered, like in retrospect, some kind of PTSD because I lost it completely when when I got put on probation at work because that was sort of the one thing I, I had stable in my life was my career and my job and uh, my drinking and like drug use just took off completely like it was it was complete insanity and uh, that led to another DUI in May of 2011 and uh, that that got me into the doors of, of Alcoholics Anonymous
0: so what did it feel like when it sounds like it was the justification you're like well I might have a drinking problem and with these with these painkillers but my job performance has always been good and and then that was taken away from you dive deeper into that feeling when you realized okay something needs to change this is a bigger deal than I thought
1: yeah well from I think January until May of 2011 I just I, I was overridden with anxiety and fear. And stress like nothing I've ever felt before. And, uh, like the, my, my, you know, my one coping mechanism was, was really, dr- uh, drinking and, and probably Vicodin too, to a, to a lesser extent. And so I was, I was drinking and drugging like, like never before. Like I never had black until this started and that, I started having blackouts then because I was I was drinking to that to that extent and uh, like I said that that resulted in a DUI and, and the DUI was like a huge wake-up call that I had to do something about this and then that literally led to my first AA meeting probably just a couple of days later and that was um, in 2011 your first AA meeting, enough. right yeah yeah okay yep, exactly.
0: and, and then May of 2014 so three years later that's when you you quit yeah, fill in the gaps from your first AA meeting to your last sobriety date of, of, of May 10th, 2014, or May 11th.
1: Yeah, so, you know, I started going to AA meetings. I got a sponsor, but I, I don't think I ever really did the steps. Uh, you know, I, I still had some, some ism uh, in 2012. Uh, you know, I, I eventually got fired from that one job. In 2012, I convinced myself I didn't have a drinking problem. But, but, you know, at this point, it was totally out of control, like blackouts were Wait, happening, we're, we're, waking up in hospitals.
0: We oh. got to dive a little bit further into how you convinced yourself yeah, sure. in 2012 that you didn't have a drinking problem. I know a lot of listeners were like, yep, I've done that, but I want to hear more, Raj.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Like I went, I remember talking to my sponsor, like telling him that, yeah, you know, maybe maybe I don't have a drinking problem. And I, again, I at this point, I think I was just totally insane because there's no other explanation for it. Like, you know, I've, I've gotten fired from a job. I'm drinking like I never have before. I have I'm having blackouts. I'm wait like I literally have I woke up in hospitals like and not knowing how I ended up there to this day. I don't know how I ended up in, in hospitals and yet I I was telling this this sponsor that yeah, you know, I maybe I don't have a drinking problem and he's telling me, Yeah, so you know, you're gonna end up doing some more field research, right? So yeah. And uh you know that that really continued throughout uh twenty twelve and at the in November of twenty twelve uh, I ended up locking myself in a hotel room during a uh, during a retreat for the firm I was working at, and then I ended up creating a huge scene at an airport, and uh, ended up in a hospital again. And my firm found out about that and literally fired me summarily from my job. Wow. And they told me to pack a box and get the f out. And uh, that that led me to treatment. Uh, it led me to the Betty Ford Center. And I'd say, like at that point. That that was my rock bottom moment by far. Like literally being told to pack a box and get out it and that was, that was your second
0: and, job that you lost, correct? Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Second job that, that I lost. That was
1: twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. And I, I ended up at Betty Ford Center and I really think at this point I, I, I really made a concerted effort to get sober. And honestly, Paul, it's, and I'm sure, you know, I, I think you've said the same thing. It was the hardest thing I've ever done and it, it I didn't get sober right away. I, I let I think I, I started drinking again a couple of days later but I I, I desperately wanted to get sober. So, you know, I got a new sponsor, I took it seriously. I went to AA meetings regularly, but it was a challenge. And, you know, this disease resides in your subconscious. And and so it it took me another year and a half. It took me two more rehabs, another year and a half, another DUI, but uh, I I, I think I got sick and tired of being sick and tired. So I went to my last rehab on, on May 11th of 2014 and it finally stuck. Why it stuck that time, I really don't know, but you know I do view my sobriety as a miracle.
0: So let's drill in a little deeper what you just said about being sick and tired of being sick and tired. of. So it sounds like you had three DUIs and there was three treatment centers, which you learned all kinds of tools, techniques, and, and, and tricks. You had a couple sponsors. You probably knew everything you needed to know about how to get sober, but talk to us about the grind. If it's just you wake up one day and you've had enough, was there a moment of clarity or what exactly happened on that date?
1: You know, there's, there was nothing special about about May 11th. It was just, it was just exactly that. I just, I just had had enough, and I, I, I don't know. And I think, I think I've heard this from you and others that you just, you, I was just ready. And I actually didn't stay at that treatment center very long. I stayed there for a couple weeks, and uh, actually had to take care of some stuff outside. I went back for another week after that. It was almost like a check-in, and yeah, I'd already heard it all before because I w- was at two treatment centers before then it just was, it just was, I was, I was ready. I just, I feel at that point my subconscious was ready. I was ready. I was ready to be sober.
0: And I talk about this, it's called the tipping point. It's where the declaration to be sober, to live a life without alcohol matches the energy around that, that, that lives in the subconscious around your addiction. And it's literally like a 50% split. 50, 50% of you wants to be sober and 50% of you wants to continue drinking. And when it reaches an equilibrium, there's a moment of clarity. It's, it's, it's when it sticks. You say You say something was different this time. It doesn't necessarily mean there won't be additional field research or you're completely departing from alcohol for the rest of your life. But it was, I remember definitively when it happened in my journey, it was September 1st, 2014. That was not my last drink. And my September 7th was mine. But I recall, it was just something was different this time. And now where I'm at now, looking back, I knew the desire to move forward in life without alcohol outweighed the desire to move forward in life with alcohol. So what happened after that? How'd you do it?
1: Well, I, uh, I started I started taking you know AA more seriously. I that actually, that sponsor I had actually sort of fired me because he just he, i i think he felt like wasn't going to get sober and he was kind of tired of working with me and i and i and I found a new sponsor that was pretty much an AA hard ass. And and he took me through the 12 steps, you know, asked me to check in with him regularly, you know, asked me to go to lots and lots of AA meetings. I never did as many as he wanted me to do. And he chastised me about that even a year later, but I was just ready. So I was ready to commit to a life of sobriety. And and I I think it just, it it was now now in my soul and my subconscious that this is what I wanted to do. It, It took me a long time to get there, but I was, I was just ready. And I was receptive to make the changes I needed to change. And I I had to change everything. I really did. So I I had to, I had to become humble. You know, I used to be a very arrogant person. I had to be humble. I had to be willing to, to ask for help. And, and I, and I actually did that. Like I, when I got that, that, the third DUI in the fall of 2013, the first thing I did is I went to I went to the head of my the tax department at my firm and HR. and I told them I needed help, and they found me that treatment center, and that that not only saved my job, it saved my career because uh, a couple of weeks later it ended up being in the newspapers and I got this DUI. And so I was just I was ready to change. And yeah, you know, I I did relapse again after after the second DUI. It took me about another six months to get sober. But but I was I was I was on my path to to sobriety. I, I was I was ready.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there and great job for going to your human resources department, being forthcoming and honest about that. And that's what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to help you. And they can't legally I believe they can't legally discharge you for that. And so you got treatment for it. And that reminds me of a program called a Hims program. It's for aviation, where it's like an 80 to 85% success rate, but they encourage their pilots to be honest about that and come forward uh, to seek treatment opposed to somebody flying under the radar, pun intended on this one, and perhaps crashing a commercial jet, shall we say so awesome job doing that. But Back by the way,
1: a, can I just say something about yeah, that? Yeah, when absolutely. When I was at Betty Ford Center, they were pilots that I was in treatment with there that were in that program.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the treatment industry, they've they've they're done specials on what is so spectacular about the Hims program, and it's embracing love and connection. Like, look, we, you come to us, and there's there really been no shame or repercussions. We'll get you the treatment you need. Um, and also, losing your wings, apparently, is <laughs> a big deal with that yeah, right yeah and,
1: well for me it was my bar license right and there you so, go yeah and well you know I guess I I this disease you know is uh, there's a lot of shame but but at this point I I knew that I need I needed help I needed help and I was ready to ask for it, and that's exactly what I did and I'm I'm glad I did it
0: when you say disease talk to us a little bit more about that do you believe in a clinical setting is a disease or is that just like a phrase what do you feel about that
1: I'm not sure what the line is between disease and not, but to me, it's a disease, uh, you know, when you're, when you're drinking and it's causing so much destruction around you and you want to stop and you can't, you know, to me that, that certainly sounds like a disease. I mean, I'm, I'm just a lawyer, not a doctor, but, uh, (laughs) but it, but it certainly appears to me to be a, to be a disease. Like I, like I said, I desperately wanted to get sober at least for a long period of time, you know, in that three year window and it, it it was it was incredibly difficult and you know there was a lot of wreckage you know I I, I was able to get the career back I have a great relationship with my son I wasn't able to save the marriage I wish I could you know but there was so much wreckage.
0: Raj what's an excuse you used to tell yourself as to why you couldn't quit drinking?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, you know, I had I had so many lame and stupid excuses. Uh, you know, one was that I had this wine cellar, and like, what's going to happen? Like, I, I can't, I can't like not drink all this wine, this great wine. Uh, you know, later I ended up giving it to KCRW, an NPR station in uh, Los Angeles, for the tax deduction. Um, so I, it did go to good use, and I had a nice auction. I hope with that wine. Uh, but that was a reason, I mean, how am I going to deal with stress, you know, I have so much stress in my job, I need to drink for, you know, the relief from stress and anxiety, you know, not, not knowing that really alcohol is making it so much worse, right? When the, when the anxiety comes back, it's so much worse because of the alcohol.
0: Let me ask you a question about stress. You mentioned tax attorney, and uh, if my timing is correct, this podcast episode drops in March, you're ramping up or finalizing tax season. How do you deal with stress with that alcohol and the anxiety?
1: Yeah, well, um, (laughs) I I don't don't do tax returns, uh, thank goodness. I uh I work on transactions. I set up private equity funds, investment funds and things like that. Uh, but yes, yeah, it's, it's very very stressful, but I, I love it. Like I, I I live off of the stress. So, I love my job. I love my career. I'm incredibly incredibly lucky to have that. You know, I I use biking and exercise uh and AA meetings. Uh, I'm talking to my sponsor. I mean that that's what I do to relieve the stress know, definitely not relying on something artificial like alcohol. You know, biking is 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 incredible for relieving stress. Uh, like after doing a bike ride, it's impossible to feel stressed out. It just is. You know, I, I go to AA meetings. I mean, probably on average once every couple of weeks or so. But I I don't think I've ever left an AA meeting feeling stressed out. And and like you, I think I think it's the fellowship more than anything else in AA. But but it certainly does help. You know, being around others who suffer from this you know common ailment. You know, talking to my sponsor certainly, certainly helps Just being with my son helps. I I love being with him. I'm glad that I have a great relationship with him and, and there's no way I would have if I was still, you know, drinking. So, you know, all of those things, all of those variety of tools, uh, help, I'm just, you know, getting back to work, even if it's stressful, just, you know, putting the nose to the grindstone and working, you know, it's, it's something I really enjoyed work, uh, doing. And, you know, something I'm working on this year, it's a work in progress, is, is the whole thing of sort of just like living through the anxiety and not trying to find something else, even like biking to, to, to resolve it, just letting it sort of, I don't know, like just, just living with it and just having it pass through you. So I'm focusing on that this year as sort of a new tool.
0: Ah, Raj, it seems like you and I are walking similar pathways here where, you know, my first couple of years away from alcohol. When I did experience uncomfortable emotions, it was get outside, get, get moving, be active with it. But recently, last year, year and a half, it's been exactly what you just said, is to recognize it and not feel the urge or pull to do anything about it and eliminate labels, not be like, oh, that's shame, that's guilt, that's depression, that's anxiety. Just say, oh, look, that's an emotional charge, and it's going to come through my system. It will pass like everything else has passed that's come through my system. I'm just going to wait this out. How has that strategy been for you, and how has it changed your recovery?
1: Uh, well, it's a work in progress, I must admit. But yeah, I, I have been doing it more often, and I, I, think, I think it's sort of making my recovery deeper and more substantial. So uh, I can't say that I'm, I'm quite, I, I'm quite there yet. You know, I'm reading that book uh, when things fall apart. I think that's part of it. Uh, I know you talked about that on your show. Yeah, uh, but Pima, you know, it, it, yeah, children. I think it, it takes. Right, exactly. It, 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 you know, look, it takes a lot of time, I think, and, and focus to have that sort of succeed. So I, I have to say, you know, my fallback is still biking, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of use these other tools. But like I said, I think, I think it'll just make me a happier person and, and certainly, I think, improve and deepen my sobriety, emotional, if nothing else.
0: Well, leaning into these emotions, embracing them for what they are and not taking action is a more sustainable route in the long run, there will come a time where you're not going to be able to ride your bike and there will be, become a time where uh, you, you, if you're listening and you like to run or to hike or to go to the gym that you can't do that. And I actually got a little taste of that last summer. It was, uh, it was a stressful summer. I sold three businesses or uh, finalized the sale of three businesses. I wrote a book and I got really into yoga. I would go to yoga about three to five times a week. And previously to that, Raj, I was like a once a month, once every two month yoga guy. And what happened was I, I got a, I got tendinitis in my Achilles heels. And even today, they're not 100% healed. So I wasn't able from August. So yeah, August, September, October, November, even, like I said, even today, I still can't sprint. I can't, my Achilles heels aren't hundred percent, but back then I couldn't do yoga. In fact, I think I've done two or three yoga classes since then. So there was a time where yoga was what I would do for, to manage stress, to manage anxiety. And I found myself unable to hike, unable to bike, unable to do yoga. I said, Oh, well shit, what do I do now? Well, I guess I'll sit and ride these emotions out, which it becomes enjoyable that that in itself, was, it was almost a gift, right? It was almost, it was a total blessing in disguise. So now it's, it's kind of a combination. Well, let's get outside, let's get active. But uh, I want to, I want to put in that other strategy as well. And there's also a window of tolerance to lean. I've always said lean into these emotions, but lean into them yeah. at a slow pace. Cause you can, you can shock the system if you're sitting with these intense emotions of anxiety, shame, guilt, resentment, et cetera. So it's like, you go in, you go out, you go in, you go out. But yeah, it's a it's a totally different strategy for me as well. And Raj, talk to me about the differences from year one to, or like your first year away from alcohol, from year one. And what was it like? What's the difference from year one and two?
1: Uh, well, I, I guess I'd say that you know, year one was was a lot of AA meetings. You know, probably I don't know five five a week. You know, doing the doing the the twelve steps, talking to my sponsor every day or at least every other day it was it was like just heavily focused on on recovery you know i probably spent i don't know 20 hours a week on on recovery and you know over time you know it's been sort of going back you know to to sort of a normal life and and focusing more on my career you know i started biking more seriously in the fall of 2014 So basically joined a joined a bike club and I don't think it's a coincidence but I've I've met other other sober cyclists, many other sober cyclists through through uh I guess this journey. Um, so there are others that are using using it as a tool to sobriety as well. You know, I guess I guess just sort of instead of having uh recovery be the focus of my life to just using the tools of sobriety in my life and and uh, it, you know it, it's a journey, and and as you indicated, you're using different tools now, as as am I. Like I, I actually just started yoga last summer, and I have found it to be you know very very relaxing too, and beneficial for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about trying to do more formal meditation. I know you're going to focus on that at the uh, at the uh, Denver retreat. Um, which is something I, I'm thinking about. So so it's a journey. So I, I would say, like, you know, it's not just the first year. Every, every year my recovery is changing. But I, I, I do my best to avoid, you know, that I've got this, and I'm always talking to my sponsor about, you know, what what should I be doing for my sobriety, you know, taking guidance from him on that. Because, you know, the moment that I that I stop taking it seriously is the moment that, you know, I... I you know, I think, you know, very well could relapse. So I, I, I take my sobriety very seriously and I hope, I, I hope I'll, I'll always do that because it's, it's a cunning, baffling and powerful disease.
0: Raj, unofficial tally, but I believe you're the 10th or 12th person that cycling has played a huge role in their departure from alcohol. In fact, I interviewed a guy named Randy, I don't know, 200 episodes ago. He lives in Guam, <laughs> and then I went and visited Randy in Guam, and Guam is an awesome place. So I know exercise, getting out on the road, that flow state is crucial for for many. And I love how you said the first year was more like classroom work, shall we say, where you're learning the tools. You did 20 hours a week of recovery. That's a lot. That's a lot. But it's what some of us have to do. I mean, I was, I was probably 20 to 40 to 50 hours a week because that's when I started Recovery Elevator, so I get it. But then there comes a time where you take what you learn in the classroom and you apply it to real life and build the emotional sobriety, which sounds, as like, which sounds like what you did from year one to year two. And what were some of the challenges that you found in real life, a life without alcohol that you went up against where alcohol no longer was an option?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's been lots of challenges i mean i I'll be honest i was i was a i was a very horrible husband i you know all I did is drink all the time I was never there for my wife emotionally and you know those those three years were were a living hell and you know it was in in the fall of twenty fourteen you know she she wanted to get a divorce so that that was pretty traumatic. Uh, in, in 2017, I think it was, uh, the State Bar of California decided that they wanted to suspend me for those two DUIs that I had gotten.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: so I had to fight them. Yeah, I had to fight them. I mean, like, I, and although there was in a diversion sobriety, program, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, this is 2017, right? Wow. So I'm three years sober. And uh, despite that, they were trying to suspend me for a year. For these DUIs, these were like no, no one got injured in these DUIs, and I, I I never caused any harm to clients. You know, thank goodness. I drove drunk so many times; easily, someone could have gotten uh, gotten hurt. And you know, I used to drive drunk with my my, with my child all the time. So I'm incredibly grateful to my higher power that I never never caused any harm to to anyone. But despite that, you know, the state bar decided that as a matter of policy that if you get a couple DUIs, they they're going to try to suspend you. And so I had to I had to fight them. And you know, luckily my firm supported me through that whole process and the state bar lost. Uh, they they appealed. They lost again. But uh, but that was incredibly stressful. So those were a couple just sort of spikes in in, uh, in my, you know, time of sobriety which, you know, were were very 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 anxious, <laughs> stressful times. But I've sort of practiced my emotional sobriety, and I can't control other people, places, or things. And um, I have such a great support network. And you know, I, I, I've also sort of, I, I guess, whenever, whenever things are going, you know, poorly in my life, or I have stress at work, and I think about drinking. You know, I I play the tape forward, which is another one of your phrases, which is that like, what is it going to do for me, right? Like if I have a drink after having a poor day at work or whatever, like what what is it going to do for me? That I, that alcohol is poison, right? Like it's not it's not going to do one thing that's going to help my life. It's just going to make it worse. It's just it doesn't help. So I found that to be a successful strategy. You know, when going through stressful you know, times. Uh, you know, I have an incredibly stressful job at least once or twice a week. I have sort of a major crisis I have to deal with at, uh, at work. And sometimes thoughts of drinking creep into my head. And I literally have to tell myself, what good is that drink going to do?
0: Raj, earlier in the interview, you mentioned quitting drinking is perhaps one of the hardest things you've, you've ever done. What do no, you th- it was
1: the hardest. <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> I agree. My, same with me. What do you think was the hardest thing about it?
1: really you know two things i mean number 1 this disease is in your subconscious and i think steering the titanic is probably easier than changing your subconscious right it's not something easy to do and you know over that those 30 years of drinking i had i had learned that you know drinking is the solution to all of my problems and you know, trying to to get the message down to my subconscious that drinking and you know later Vicodin, but it always it started with drinking, and so you know I I do consider myself an alcoholic first and foremost. That I, ha- I had to, I had to get the message. I had to, I had I to continue to get the message into my subconscious. And by the way, I do want to say one more thing. I burn the ships all the time. You know, all of my. All of my important clients know that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I share this with everybody. Like, it's it's not a secret at all. Uh, what are and, their responses? You know, it's, you know, it, it, everyone is incredibly supportive. Like, it's never – like, I, you know, again, sharing it with my firm back in 2013 – Everyone has been incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, they don't feel sorry for me. You know, at this point, I, I you know, it, it doesn't end the conversation. You know, they, you know, they, they may ask me questions about how I got sober. Everyone's got someone in their lives that suffers from this, right? So, Everyone. oftentimes they're like, "Well, how did you do it?" Right? Like, I, they've asked me to talk to people in their lives that that are suffering. So, it, it's just been incredibly, I guess enlightening. And i am worried sometimes about sharing my sobriety, you know, when I haven't before. And is it going to backfire? Like last summer, I did the AIDS ride from... From San Francisco to Los Angeles, incredible event. Uh, seven days, over 500 miles. And anyone that gave me money, I sent an email, and I disclosed to them that I'm in recovery. And the feedback I got was incredibly uplifting and positive. So I've never—it's never backfired. Never, it's never—it's never had an adverse consequence. If anything, it's just been incredibly sort of positive in my life. And I, and, and my my history and my recovery is part of who I am. And for me to keep it secret, it's it just it just wouldn't be who I am. So. No, I don't, I don't keep a secret. I I tell everyone. And I mean, just a couple of weeks ago I was at a funeral and I shared with someone I was in recovery and he pulled out his four year chip and his 24 hour a day chip. So I've met people in recovery through this, like I mentioned to you through cycling. I've told people I'm, I'm, I'm a sober cyclist. I've met many people doing it. I'm actually part of a sober cycling bike club, formal bike club as well. So it's it's definitely part of my recovery. And I, I certainly would suggest that, that if, uh, if you're looking for sobriety, you just have, to, you have to burn the ships and you have to be able to disclose that's who you are.
0: Raj, you mentioned it has never backfired and that is my experience. It has yet to backfire and I know it never will. In fact, the opposite has happened for me. The more ships I burn in this regard, the more my life propels in a positive direction and in fact, listeners, I have yet to hear an example of when somebody burning the ships that it backfires. Now there's one guy, I think he's in Go or Cafe Harry Blue. Where he's got this story he's like look i did it and i got fired from my job we kind of agreed to disagree i'm like yeah but that's a place you don't want to work at um and you, and it, regardless but i mean i've heard like thousands and thousands of stories about when we burn the ships incredible things happen so i love how you opened up about that and, and raj one more question before we hit the rapid fire round um you are in cafe re up tell us about that community um and how has, how has it been in your recovery
1: yeah, so I just joined in in January, and you know I, I know that we're going through a transition or will soon, but but I, yeah, look, I I really enjoyed being a part of it. Uh, you know, I I because of my travel schedule, I I don't really get to sponsor people in and you know the through 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 uh, REUP, you know, I feel like it's almost like sponsorship because there are a lot of people newly sober and I get to sort of share the tools that I've developed and used to stay sober. So I I have found it, you know, incredibly helpful to me. And, you know, I, I, I was actually in a Challenging period. I was in New York City, and honestly, I felt I was on the verge of relapsing, and that that's what you know triggered me to, to, to join. And and I found it to be sort of an incredibly helpful to my own sobriety. And I've I've made some very good friends. I think I've been in it for six weeks now, and I've already made some amazing friends in sobriety through it. Uh, you know, I'm actually in Boston right now, and there's someone I know here, Patrick, and we've become good friends. And you know, he couldn't meet me on this trip, but we're going to meet up again. And uh, you know, there, there are a bunch of others that I've met. Uh, you know, I, I have a um, accountability partner I actually was able to meet with him He he's in Phoenix and I was there on a business trip a couple of weeks ago so we met up so uh, yeah like I've I've certainly sort of you know expanded my sober community through through RE up so I, I found it to be very very helpful
0: are you serious you're almost going to meet up with Patrick the listeners Patrick was episode 248 Yeah, that's Uh, right. That is so funny. And that's how the accountability works with this. And Raj, I got to say thank you for being such an anchor in Cafe RE Up. And listeners, that's the new group we launched on January 1st of this year, 2020. So what happens, we get a lot of people who are on day one. They sign up for the group. And they're looking for guidance, for stewardship. And I remember when you showed up and I read your intro or I found out that you had more time than me away from alcohol, it always makes me feel good. I'm like, all right, we are going to be okay. We've got a rock star like Raj in the group. In fact, somebody emailed me and was like, hey, I would love to hear Raj's story on the podcast. And when that happens then you pretty much got an interview and then I reached out to you I don't know if you know that but somebody emailed me Raj and said hey you should think about interviewing Raj he's been so helpful and up so I don't think I told you that when I, emailed no, I didn't you.
1: but that's great yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> Thank yeah. You. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah so somebody actually nominated you and I was like yeah Raj why did not I think of that great idea let's get you on the podcast and this has been a fantastic interview so we have hit the rapid fire round answer these questions within 30 seconds please are you ready sure sure <laughs> what's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey
1: that we can't do this alone like uh, you know it takes it takes a village and uh, you know i think what is it the opposite of addiction is connection and i have found that to be completely true uh, you know if i isolated and just just uh, tried to do something on my own i i know i'd still be drinking
0: and what's a memorable moment a life without alcohol has provided you
1: Wow. Well, I just talk about a recent one that, uh, you know, my, my son was in a play at his school and, you know, he actually wasn't the lead, but uh, but he totally stole the show. And I was able to be present and actually actually sort of witness it. And I was able to tell him, wow, you know, what an amazing job you did. Uh, you know, if if I was still drinking, you know, the odds are I'd probably be drunk and I wouldn't be there. And if I was there, I certainly wouldn't remember what he was doing. So just the fact that I can be there present with my son, you know, that's, that, 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 that to me is the reason for me to be sober.
0: And what's your favorite alcohol-free drink?
1: I'm a very simple guy. I just love simple uh, club soda. Like I have a soda stream at home and I drink water like it's going out of style and I don't, I don't eat it flavored. I, I just, you know, simple sparkling water, simple club soda. It works great for me.
0: And what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life?
1: Yes, there are a bunch of different sort of uh, bike bike challenges that I that I've got that, that I want to do. There's uh, I'm doing the AIDS ride again this year from San Francisco to Los Angeles. Again, there's no way I could do that if I was if I was drinking. You know, a bike trip through the Pyrenees, just you know, various various biking biking adventures.
0: And what are some of your favorite resources?
1: Uh, you know, I i think that the big book of AA is a terrific resource. Uh I R E up has turned out to be a great resource. Uh AA meetings, I, I AA meetings especially when I'm on the road. I have found to just speak, you know, a terrific resource. I mean, even if I just don't feel sort of stress or anxiety, just just going to a meeting, I think is like inoculation against future uh, perhaps triggers and challenges. So, you know, AA meetings are terrific. Uh, I, I really enjoyed your podcast. I've I, I'm actually listening to old ones. I think I'm up to May of 2018, so I'm catching up to to more recent history. But I did I did listen to Patrick's interview though. You know, working with my sponsor. You know, those are all, those are all tools, I'd say.
0: And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners?
1: Uh, You know, if, if you're struggling with staying sober, uh, look, you know, it took me three years and, uh, don't give up. Uh, just, just keep trying. I, I think that the only shame is in giving up. Uh, this is an incredibly difficult, difficult disease. And I've done a lot of difficult things in my life. I've never done anything remotely as challenging as getting sober. But I've also never, ever met anyone who didn't keep trying uh, that ultimately, you know, didn't get sober. So if you keep at it, you'll get there. And I've heard this from lots of other people, too, that they were hopeless cases. And I really felt that was a hopeless case yeah, during those three years because I just could not get sober until the miracle happened. So uh, just, just keep at it.
0: And before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might need to ditch the booze if line.
1: Gosh, there, there are so many. If you're driving drunk with your three-year-old child from Los Angeles to Mammoth, which is sort of a a mountain ski area 300 miles away.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good one. That's a good one, Raj. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Again, thank you for helping getting Cafe Area up on the right track. Good stuff. Right now, I'm recording this episode in Edwards, Colorado. I am home visiting my family. And the other night, I went to an AA meeting, which is a great way to meet an instant tribe, instant community. I love doing this while I'm traveling. In fact, one of the coolest parts about doing Recovery Elevator in Australia was I went to AA meetings almost every day and I met people, went to the beach with them. I met a guy named Barry, we went and fed seagulls. You you get invited to barbecues. It's just a great way to instantly connect with your tribe. So I'm at the meeting and everybody goes around and introduces themselves real quick. And then they start pulling names out of a basket. And I said to myself, well, I definitely didn't put my name in the basket, so I won't be sharing. However, the second name pulled out of the basket was mine. And I'm like, okay, I guess they put my name in the basket when we went around. And the topic was the first step um, which we are powerless over alcohol. Now I like to switch that is, in we reach a moment where we are powerless over our thinking to overcome this problem called alcohol. In fact, it's the one of the first problems that I've ever encountered in my life where I am the most important party. For example, it's not dependent on another friend or relationship with a gal, whatnot. It's me. It's the only problem that I've encountered in my life where I cannot think myself out of Ugh, the pickle of a lifetime. So that was the topic, and as you can imagine me doing the Recovery Elevator podcast for uh, no, 268 straight weeks now, I can go for a while. In fact, I probably could have spoken about this topic for the full duration of the meeting. And while I'm going, I'm connecting some threads. I feel like I'm I'm doing well on this topic. A guy right across from me, his uh, his phone starts ringing, and, which normally happens then is somebody quickly pulls the phone out and hits stop and is like, oh, sorry, guys. Um, but this guy had his phone on his lap, And right around the three minute mark, the phone just kept ringing. And I realized he wasn't going to stop the ringtone uh, or the call that he was getting. And I looked over at him and I go, Hey, uh, are you going to do something about that? He looks at me and then takes his finger and goes down on his phone and hits stop. And I go, thank you, Paul. Good name, by the way, as I recall, when we were going around, his name was Paul. So I said, thank you, Paul, appreciate that. And I continued to go for another 30 seconds to a minute and concluded my share. Now, the next person who goes right around, I don't know, the three minute mark, the same annoying galactic ringtone goes off and the guy who was speaking goes, oh, well, that's my timer, I should probably wrap it up. And I go, oh my God, I'm such an idiot. That guy was the timer, his service position was the timer. And some guy named Paul from the Recovery Elevator podcast looks across him and I seriously go, uh, are you going to do something about that? I thought he was getting a phone call and just didn't stop it. So just wanted to share that story with you. And again, if you're traveling, do a quick Google search, AA Chicago, AA St. Louis, AA Sacramento. You're going to find a list of meetings And it's a great way, even if you're struggling or not, just to go and get some coffee, maybe some cookies and meet some cool people that are on the same journey as you. I highly recommend it, but uh, maybe ask what the timer is because I do not recall them saying, please limit your shares to three minutes or you're going to get a galactic ringtone. That sounds like a phone call. I don't remember that being said. I'm sure it was said though. So that's all I got. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Like always, I like putting together recovery elevator we took the elevator down we got to take the stairs back up we can do this